uh, again, my name is Andrew Eden Lewis. I'm the uh, Arthur's lead for the Mental Health Foundation um, uh, in Scotland, and thank you for joining us for this. Um, I'll be quite honest; I don't really have a, a very developed plan for this session. Um, the the idea for having this conversation came from, I suppose, a bit of a paradox uh, uh, that we are very aware of with the Scottish Mental Health Arts and Film Festival, which is the big festival we we program. Um, we and many, many other people across the country will program in October each year, which is that it's a very big, expansive program of live arts events. Um, the obvious target audience of which are a lot of people who find it difficult to go to live arts events. And that, is, and that, that can be an anxiety-inducing thing. And so a, con a question that we are kind of constantly asking ourselves as an organization, as programmers, is, is how do we resolve that? How do we create a, a live arts program that is accessible to everybody? Um, and do we change the way we, we, we actually program things? Do we change the way we kind of promote it? Do we, we come to come to the audience rather than trying to get the audience to come to us? And so we're, there, there are lots of things that we are constantly discussing and thinking about and um, yes that's something I would like to do uh, today and I'm, I'm if, if you're up for it I would very much like to just get your thoughts on that rather than us talk for any great length of time. Um, one of the things we did today um, for this uh, event is, is create a chill out corner upstairs. I don't know if has anyone been up to the chill out corner today? Okay which is um, uh, just to say a little bit about that it's um, a space uh, upstairs, which is based on uh, uh, kind of an open source design template uh, created by an artist called Harry Giles, um, who is autistic, um, and it's based on autism-friendly design principles. But it's, it's really based as re really intended as a space within a kind of big, very social, very busy um, environment where people can go and just um, have, a, have a little bit of peace and and um, uh, and yeah, and chill out. Um, because the, the arts is obviously a very kind of sociable environment. There's a lot, lots of very busy places. It can be, and a lot of artists though are uh, quite anxious people. Uh, um, find those, those those situations quite difficult. So that's another you know um, uh, kind of paradox. And how do we uh, uh, address that? So um, sitting alongside me, um, uh, firstly we have Emma Jane Park, who is um, a choreographer, dancer and associate artist for the Scottish Mental Health Arts and Film Festival. And there is a project along these, along the lines that we're talking about that, um, uh, uh, that uh, uh, Emma would like to talk about. Uh, we have Paula Maguire, who you met this morning, um, who I thought, thought would be really interesting to get your perspective on this as, as someone who has lived with very, you know, very extreme anxiety and has found various ways out into the world. I, I thought it would be really interesting to bring you to this conversation. And we also have uh, Fiona Cooper from uh, it's the National Autistic Society. Not actually, there's a different autism organisation. Yeah, <laughs> National Autistic Society um, Scotland, um, who, uh, who is, uh, and a lot of your work is about autism-friendly arts events in, in yep. different ways. So maybe we can, we can start with you. Can you tell me a bit about your work? Yeah, so over the past three three to four years in Scotland uh, with the National Autistic Society, we've been supporting venues and production companies to put on more autism-friendly performances, or sometimes they prefer to call them relaxed performances. Um, and that's about making the venue itself a lot more inviting to autistic adults and young people. 
um, but also to make the actual performance that the cast and the crew are going to be involved in a lot more accessible as well. Um, we do quite a few things in the run up to that. So we provide information and training to the cast, crew and front of house staff about autism and about the needs of the families who are going to be going there. And that can be everything um, from the journey that people are taking to get to the theatre. So a lot of people um, who are going to the theatre for the first time um, won't even know what to expect and it'll be a new journey for them when they're getting there on the bus. So you could make the theatre the most autism friendly, relaxed area in the world. They could still be stressed out their box when they get there because their bus was delayed or there was a problem with the train or you know it's just a new journey. Um, so it's just obviously preparing the staff there um, to let them know that that, that could happen. Um, and then in terms of the cast and crew, again, just to let them know that sometimes uh, things that the audience will be doing might be different from other audiences that they've experienced. So for relaxed performances, not everybody has an assigned seat. So for, for typical shows that you go to, you get your ticket and you have to sit in the seat that you've been assigned. Um, but for our performances, you can get up and you can move around. So if you're not particularly comfortable in one space, if there's too many people around you or you don't like the smell of what, what someone's eating in front of you, you can get up and move. Um, we tend to underbook the spaces so that it's not too cramped, so you can move around. So it's letting the, the cast know that just because somebody's getting up and they're moving to the back, it doesn't mean that they don't like your show. It's that they want to enjoy your show even more because of the space that they're in. Um, also things like the members of the audience might shout out or make vocalisations, they might um, you know, be chatting amongst themselves at times, it doesn't mean that they're not enjoying your show, it's just the way that they communicate um, in their space. Um, so suppose an example of that would be we did a relaxed performance of Dragon at the Citizens Theatre and there's a part near the end of the show where the two actors are facing out towards the audience but they're talking to each other, they're just not facing each other and one of the actors says to his pal, do you want to hang out? And one of the people that we support in the audience went, eh, no, and like shouted <laughs> back. Um, so just obviously preparing the crew for that, but that was so nice because, again, when you go to a lot of theatre shows, it can sometimes feel a bit like, a bit like us and them. You're not supposed to shout out and you're not supposed to talk. So that kind of barrier was broken down and there was a nice wee bit of interaction there. Um, we had another instance in the same show, actually, where um, the actor's running on the spot, but the scenery's changing behind him. So it's supposed to look like he's running through a street, I think it is. And uh, one of the people that we support was saying, but you're not going anywhere. Um, obviously pointing out the audience, <laughs> the obvious. Um, but it's that sort of thing, um, just obviously to let the crew know. Th these things can happen, it's totally fine. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're not enjoying themselves. Um, we also encourage the venues to create a chill-out area, a bit like the one upstairs. Um, and again, that's just to allow people, if there's a lot of sensory um, information that, that are coming into them, they can go out and they can chill out for about 10-15 minutes and they can come back in again. And it makes all the difference. We've had people that have come, um, so sometimes the box seats as well, we keep them empty. So if someone is really struggling and they just need to get away to enjoy the show, they can do that. Um, this year we had a guy who was in his 40s and he was with one of his carers and he'd never been to any sort of show before and this was um, the panto at the King's Theatre and the second he walked in he was like I don't like it I want to go home and his carers were ready just to take him home and had to like stop them as they were going out and I said no, hold on we've got a box seat upstairs if you want to be able to use that one try it out for you know 15 minutes or so and see how you feel and at first he was like no no I definitely want to go home um, and his carers were saying that but why don't you just try it we'll go up and we'll look and if you don't like how 
it looked up there, we'll go home. And he went up and he actually stayed for the whole show and that's the first time he'd ever been to the theatre and he, he managed it. So it's just kind of opening it up a bit. Um, we do things like people are allowed to have their iPads out as a communication aid, but also if there's too much going on in front of them, they can um, they can look down at their iPad, um, watch a short video with the sound off, um, you know, for for ten fifteen minutes. If that helps them to then go back and watch the rest of the show, so everything about it is a lot more relaxed and chilled out. Um, People get up and dance. One of the ones that we had before, some kids um, that came to the show had stolen toilet roll out of the, the toilets. And I think they thought it was like a concert at the end because there was a big show, uh, the big song at the end. They were actually throwing the toilet roll about the audience, <laughs> which you would never get in a, you know, a typical show. Um, people were standing up and actually like rocking out and stimming and rocking back and forwards again. In the ordinary shows, the show at the end, people would kind of sit and maybe like clap along. But people were really celebrating it and obviously felt like they could do that. So it was really, really nice to see. Um, so yeah, th those are the sorts of things that we tend to do to, to help people um, feel more welcome. And once they try it, hopefully they'll want to come back and, and continue to come back. So actually, relaxed performances sounding way more fun mm. than those. <laughs> 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 Andy, yeah. Um, uh, I know you weren't directly involved in this, but um, you, uh, the, as an organisation you worked with the Edinburgh Fringe last mm -hmm. year. That, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, again, I think it was a similar um, situation. So the, the venues at the Fringe who were interested in getting um, involved in making their areas a lot more autism friendly or a lot more accessible, again, it was given training to um, the staff members who were going to be involved. Um, things like adapting sound and lighting. So we tend to ask people to like tone down the sound levels by roughly about 25%. It's just a guideline. Um, but it would be things like that. Um, and yeah, so flashing lights, like really strong intense lights, we would ask people to reduce. Any kind of loud, like pyros or things like that in the shows, we, we would tend to take out. But we, we're always a bit wary, we don't want to strip it back so much that it's not fun and not an interesting show. It's sometimes a difficult balance to get because what, what might be too much sensory information for one person might not be for someone else. So we, we're trying to kind of strike that balance. So that was the sort of work that we did. Okay, okay, thank you. Um, Paula, tell me um, about um, what your experience of going to arts events and um, what are the things that make you comfortable and what are the things that are, are, are stressful? This is stressful. <laughs> um, no, I would just, for about maybe a decade, there's no way that you would have got me to an arts event. I would mm. maybe have got to the door if I was really, really pushing myself, and I mean to the door in the car, the door of my car, I wouldn't have got out of the car, um, and there's no way that I could have walked in. Mm. Um, so things that you were mentioning about, you know, bringing performances to, to people, um, and I know that you're, you're thinking about that, um, I think is a great idea. Um, Localised performances as well, you know, I, I couldn't have come into the city centre in any, you know, doesn't matter how mm. <laughs> you, you could have brought me by the hand there's no way I could have done it um, I think so reaching out to people is, is better um, even just small things like I, I come in here today and um, and this is not a criticism of this it's just this is the way things happen you have to mill about before things happen and as someone with general anxiety and social anxiety I would always turn up early for things because I would be so worried about walking in late so I would turn up really early and then I would have to just stand about 
and there was nowhere for me. I didn't know where mm. I was meant to be, what was the social situation, what should I, did I have to buy a coffee to sit in the seat? So I could, so just even just opening the doors to the venue early, just so that people um, can go in and just sit. And things like you were mentioning set seats, to me set seats are a godsend, mm -hmm. because it means it's, it's less opportunity for me to get something wrong. Mm. So if I go in and I sit in a seat and I don't know if that's if that's my seat, that could be somebody else's seat. Or you know if I have to choose, if I have to make that decision, then that's an opportunity for me to get that wrong. So having something with a number on it or a block, like you can sit in the front two rows, that narrows things down yeah. for me and, mm -hmm. and takes takes a sh in the same way. I feel that the arts has a real opportunity, a real responsibility, even to challenge people. So, I also think that we shouldn't be we shouldn't be coddling people to to stay in that that situation. But I think you need to have the information. Yeah. So, when I'm in the right frame of mind to challenge myself, then I can come to something like this. So maybe advertising this is something that's a little bit more of a challenge. Um, but something else is something that there is no audience participation in. Do you know what I mean? Like, tell me. I don't mind if there's going to be audience participation, mm -hmm. but I need to know that up front yeah. because if I'm in the right frame of mind, I'll be fine and I can I can go along and I can participate with everyone else, but I need that information. Um, if there's going to be no audience participation at all and I can sit in the back row and just enjoy it, then then tell then tell me. Um, okay. You know that that kind of thing. Just advertise something as this might be a bit more difficult for you. You are still more than welcome. You can still we know you can do it. Supportive. Yeah. But um, but it might be more of a challenge, just so that I know. So it's know. Know, knowing what to expect, yeah. setting the boundaries, setting uh -huh. the parameters. That's and, that kind and tell of me thing. where the toilets are up front, because <laughs> if I have to ask somebody where the to toilets are, I'm leaving. Um, I, know, I know that sounds really ridiculous, and it, but it's just these really small, really practical things that, that make such a difference to someone who's sitting there really, really struggling. Um, mm. And I wouldn't have said, and I'm talking about myself you know, in the past, because nowadays I am much more able to, to be at these things, but um, I wouldn't have told you that I was struggling. I would have sat there and suffered and, and you know, left at the intermission because I didn't want to ask somebody where, where the toilets were or um, I didn't want to walk out at the same time as anybody else in case I didn't know where the exit was and I made a fool of myself, so I would maybe leave early or all these wee things. And I'm not then engaging with what I'm actually meant to be engaging with on the screen or on the stage because I'm constantly thinking, right, what's my next move? What do I need to do next? Where, where do I need to be next? Um, you know, is there signage? Can I, can I get out of here? Um, just tiny little things make such a difference. Sure, sure. And, and, and yet what you were saying about the seats and the, the, the specified seats is really interesting. It, it perhaps illustrates that what makes people anxious is it varies yeah. so much. I mean, well, they do have a specific seats when they first go in, but they're allowed to move. Like people right, can get see. up and move about if they don't like it, as long as those seats are free. And we do um, keep. I think it's like the middle two rows are uh, not booked out. So, you know, we we know that those are open for people. If you want to, like, if you're not happy with your seat, you can move. Um, as you were saying, you know, people with with anxiety are just people with anxiety. Mm -hmm. So. We're all different, you know, it, mm. it's not, it's really cliche, but it's not one size fits all. You might, with the best will in the world, do everything that you possibly can and it, it might just not be the right day for that person or the right venue for that person to get to in the frame of mind that they're in. So, um, 
these are just little things that you might be able to do, but sure. people with anxiety yeah. might still not be up to it that day, as there were days that I was. Do you find that you've you kind of changed the, the methods you use and the ways you do it over over the years in in response to how people responded, or, or do you find do you feel like you found a kind of formula that that, that works largely? Um, we haven't changed it too much. We want uh, one, one of the things that I think we focus more on, um, and I think it's just something that everybody likes, is we, we tend to focus less on the typical um, kind of autistic behaviours and the triad and things like that when we're delivering training to staff in front of house. It's more just general customer service that we all expect <laughs> because we always do consultation um, with the adults and the people that we, the, the young people and the adults that we support. And when I first started doing consultation, I was expecting people to say, yeah, I want um, a low sensory environment, a quiet place, um, you know, all, all those kind of typical things that you would expect. But actually, number one on everybody's list every time we do it is we just want the staff to be friendly and approachable. That's the main thing that people want because <laughs> and it's basically if if you go into an environment and it's not quite right for you, if you feel comfortable enough to be able to say to somebody, actually, would you mind turning that music down a little bit? Or do you, could you tell me where the toilets are? If you walk in and someone's got a smile on their face and says, just let me know if you need any help, that just put that's half the battle. So that's one of the things I think we emphasise more mm -hmm. rather than, you know, talking about routines and structure and, and all that sort of thing because it really helps to put people at ease. Just be a good human being. Pre pretty much. <laughs> and I think that's what we all kind of look for. Emma, I see you making lots of notes. What are you taking from this? Um, well, there's just something that's something I come up a lot within my own work where the kind of phrase safe spaces mm -hmm. um, is, is used a lot now and I think it's a great premise but I'm not sure that it's always something that's actually implemented um, and for me it relates to permission in lots of ways so I can sit here now and go it's dead informal you can leave and go and get a coffee whenever you want that doesn't actually enable anyone to get up and do that I, I think I'm right in assuming that most people would still feel really awkward if I'm mid-sentence getting up and going and getting a coffee um, and so it's how we build these safe spaces and a lot of my work over the past three years has been out of traditional theatre environments and that's partly because I'm from a very rural place and I wanted to make work that I can just take home and do in spaces that aren't designed um, and also because I don't cope so well myself in terms of theatre convention I really struggle sitting in a seat like this because I'm someone who moves so as you can see I don't don't do the both feet on the ground sitting up really straight or I go home with a really bad back. You can move if you like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, and within that work, um, and working with performers, and we've had to go through this notion of actually giving people permission and what it means to give people permission and how to give people permission to a safe point. So the last work I did was for five-year-olds and their families. And one of the great things about being five is when someone gives you permission, physically gives you permission, then that's it. You've been given permission. <laughs> so, um, But that's a massive lesson, because then you need to learn how to say... There's permission to get up and touch the cast here, but not here. <laughs> There's permission to climb on this bit of the set, not on this bit of the set, um, which is a minefield completely. <laughs> um, and so it just makes me think about, for me artistically, when I'm making work, my big question is where I want the challenge to be. I like to try and make challenging work, whatever that means. Um, but for me, if the challenge is getting you in the room, there's no way anyone's going to engage with anything. Mm. 
that I'm I'm interested in in sharing. Um, and around that, a lot of the conventions that exist in theatre for me are that challenge. I once worked with a brilliant man. Um, I run a, a ticket campaign, suspended tickets, so you advance purchase theatre tickets and then I distribute them through various charities who work with people um, who are living with homelessness. And a man was really excited, first theatre experience, got there, was told to collect his tickets at the box office. Doesn't know what a box office is, rightly so, because what a ridiculous phrase for a place you get your tickets. Um, and was laughed at by a member of front of house. And, and I'm sure in, like a, in a kind like... Just like a wee exhale, mm -hmm. that was it. And I have tried for the past year to then say to this person, let's go, we'll go together, we can do it, we'll have dinner before. It's not going to happen. Um, solely because of that stupid jargon. <laughs> do you know? Ah. Um, and so there's something about tackling those conventions yeah. and buzzwords and, like you say, sharing information that makes things feel safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's the same issues like I said that have been coming up for three years so it's probably nothing new to anyone in the room but then I find it quite shocking in some ways that sure. there's still issues we're coming up against when actually just calling a ticket office a ticket office seems quite easy <laughs> you'd think you talk a little bit about the living room before yes. um, so that that kind of where I want the challenge to be is what triggered partly um, my next project which is where I want to make performances that will be taken directly into people's living rooms which in itself isn't a new concept but the not the living rooms of middle class people with lots of space to entertain um, living rooms of people who have immunodeficiency disorders who are living with some form of additional support need that makes getting somewhere really difficult um, or people who have other reasons that they need to stay at home. Um, so that could be anxiety, that could be having a young baby. Um, and this idea of being able to just make a phone call, someone turns up and they do what they do in your living room for you to make your life much easier. Um, and then when you talk about safe spaces and think about that, things become really complicated. Um, because sometimes this home, I know from personal experience, I had six months of chemotherapy. Um, I finished that a year ago, I was going to say two years ago, it's not that long, um, finished that a year ago and a big thing that hit me was that this thing that makes me feel really human, which is going to live performance, suddenly I couldn't access because I physically wasn't allowed to be in a space with this many people. <laughs> so unless it was a really bad piece of theatre that wasn't going to sell, <laughs> I wasn't allowed to go. Um, and I, I wanted to, to tackle that and see what I could do to craft that. But then in order to make the safe, the space safe, I have to deal with the fact that that space is now someone's haven, someone's prison, someone's home <laughs> um, in a functional capacity, as well as a multitude of other things, including for me, if a performer had an inkling that they may have been in contact with someone with a cold, towards the end of my treatment, the performance would be cancelled because I couldn't risk that health-wise. Um, so this notion of safe for me kind of flips on its head in the sense that I hope I can make the situation less challenging for someone by going into their home. But this early part of the research is very much about going, well, actually, is it more affronting to say you're quite anxious and this is your home? Hiya! <laughs> <laughs> Gonna dance. Just the two of us. How do you feel? Um, 
Yeah. So it's, it's a bold, it's a big question, but when Andrew and I discussed it as well in terms of the festival, that was where the conversation started to impact, where I was saying, well, this, this festival that I hold so dear and feel very connected to, actually there's a broad bunch of people who cannot access any of these events because getting out of that door is just too much. Yeah. And it feels like an obvious, simple, great, lovely gesture, but there's, I, it feels like that an awful lot of research needs to go into this and all the pitfalls and to, yeah. Yeah, to make sure it's done right. And creating <laughs> those information systems and that early dialogue, and, and it sounds, administratively as an artist, it sounds great. The piece we just heard had five people in it, which for me is a lot of going, when is everyone free <laughs> for a start, let alone getting everyone in a van to get us somewhere. Um, Whereas part of me was like, yes, it's just me. Mm. <laughs> Am I free? Excellent, I can do the show. <laughs> Done. Um, but it's not, in terms of all the, the work before the performance, there's going to have to be a lot of dialogue and a lot of feeling comfortable with each other as performance audience men. But one-to-one -one performance, we're in Glasgow, so the home of Adrian Howells, and lots of brilliant research about one-to-one -one performance is actually very fragile and a little bit more more vulnerable for the audience member, I would say, um, if you think about it broadly, because it's it is a bit like a first date. <laughs> yeah, and and Adrian, to his credit, did a, a lot of preparation, a lot of research Huge. into yeah. into the ethics of it, into um, yeah, how to do it properly, and it's been very influential on that. And worked with a therapist, and yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, I'd really love to bring in other people's views, questions, and. Oh. Last point, can I just ask, is that not something that's really difficult to get funding for as well? Because you're kind of looking at the kind of more qualitative long term, which policymakers often don't value as much, as not much, no, you're not taking as many people, I guess. Is that a big challenge um, for this sort of work? Yes. Most of, to be honest, most of the work I make is a challenge in terms of funding because I don't really think about business. <laughs> um, so the last piece I made had five cast members for a capped audience of 30 half of whom were under five so it doesn't pay for itself basically but the quality of experience that comes out of that I, I don't think can be measured in terms of those words we were using this morning impact and numbers and yeah those things um, but at the same same notion if I disregard some arts funding where there's pressure to live up to these things um, and I must say we're quite lucky with Creative Scotland that they accept one-to-one -one performance as a, a definite art form so we're lucky there's kind of a culture of that mm -hmm. um, on the flip side there's some really brilliant funders through centres I've had to access myself and through private trusts and charities of people who have lived with cancer are living with other issues that seem quite supportive mm -hmm. um, the broader conversation comes into explaining why it takes so long to make these things and do these things um, for a 20 minute performance think two weeks in a studio just bang it out if you're an experienced practitioner but then actually it's going to be six months of speaking to people going into people's homes, trialling things um, research which is where actually Iris, who's upstairs um, in the everyday sexism sessions we had a lovely conversation this morning about how when I'm doing that I document that and, and manage to share that in a way that's kind of accepted in terms of research so that other people don't have to do it on such a a level which is where I think what you do is just wonderful in the sense it's shared and it, it's designed to be shared mm -hmm. so that the information can trickle yeah. at least. I think it's about giving people choice though because you know there might be some people who go to the relaxed performances and that's it's still 
too much for them. Yeah. Um, so something like an in-house show might be better. So it's not an either or. I don't think it's always just about giving people options. Yeah. I think we should also think about using outdoor spaces mm-hmm. more. Um, you know, I know for myself, just wandering into a you know, an, an art installation or a, a performance or whatever would have been a lot easier than a box around it, you know, a building and having to tackle the, you know, the infrastructure that you have to, yep. you know, the, the people that you have to say hello to to get into yep. the, before you're sitting in your seat. Um, there's so many lovely outdoor spaces that could be used for... And I was going to say, it's a point that was made this morning, it was the language in the very first session this morning, um, and it's a term that's used a lot, is how do we get people who don't come to these things to come to these things? Yep. And I know myself, I'm a fan of kind of guerrilla, <laughs> just... Yeah land where people are um, which again doesn't feel revolutionary to me but I know I'm I'm in a, an artistic society where I'm surrounded by people doing things and then I go home to Dumfries and Galloway in certain places and go oh this isn't actually not, this is now my norm I need to get out of my norm and see that this doesn't just, things don't pop up yeah, I mean I, and, and again as with the Adrian Howells one to one genre, this is genre, yeah. there, there's, there's quite a good history of that in, in Scotland. There's a lot of site-specific theatre, there's a lot of outdoor theatre, so there is a, there is a tradition of that. But Because um, theatres, they're really intimidating spaces. You, know? you go in and, and the whole place opens out and there's this big space, lots of people, and yeah. They're, they're, Darkness. Yeah. But you're right. scared, just like <laughs> But you, you're absolutely right, something about being outdoors. Yeah. It's... Maybe it's something to do with not having the walls around you. You could just feel like you could just leave and exactly. wander off. You don't moment. feel like you have to be part of it because you're yeah. just part of the space. You know, you're just part of your own world where you were two seconds ago. There's no boundary that you've crossed to say that you're now part of an audience. You're just yeah. you're there as as yourself, and I think that's really um, welcoming. And we've done shows which are basically taking people for a walk. Yes. Yeah. Um, Quite a few, um, but Experts in Shop Trousers is the best example, which is the one for the five-year-olds and their families. So the entire performance crash lands in a space, um, and we discover five aliens throughout the course of the journey, um, and we collect the different parts of our crashed spaceship, and then we build the spaceship at the end, and we jet off. Um, is the premise? Where have you been and in my life? So <laughs> Come on, um, and it's great fun, but it's actually really problematic um, because a lot of councils and venues panic that you we had, a, had to have kind of a 45 minute conversation about taking this audience of 30 down the staircase <laughs> in a building in Glasgow we're not sure you can use the upstairs space because then you're going to have to come down the stairs and there is the there there was a lift so that wasn't a, a wheelchair accessibility issue or a buggy accessibility issue which I get and have no no qualms with that was a we're concerned that some five-year-olds and their parents can't walk downstairs together without someone suing us <laughs> issue so within the piece our aliens have an entire vocabulary of ways to slowly move downstairs that are really fun <laughs> for kids which is when you see someone's granddad bum shuffling downstairs that's the point where I'm like win um, but it's, it, it stresses me out a little how much more problematic it is and I actually worked on a project where we were live streaming with Brazil once. Um, this wasn't one of my own projects. It was a very large project in Glasgow in 2014. Um, and what was brilliant is our riggers went through nightmares to rig aerial artists onto buildings. And I was running on a wall at one point and my shoes had to be assessed to see if it was wet, if I would slip on the wall. And also, as in the breaks, I'm 
somewhere jumping off a wall myself and throwing myself on things. And then we live streamed to Brazil where we met the riggers and someone, and I'm not saying this is the right way to do things, is just hanging by one arm, kind of <laughs> holding their leg with a pole, rigging things up. You know, when you're like, wait, what's happening? They're like, yeah, in Brazil we just rock up and we do it. And, and I know there's concerns about that, but I wonder if, if it would be lovely to have a counsellor or someone in this conversation to go, what can we relax and not relax? Especially, I live in Edinburgh, having then been in Edinburgh during the festival and thinking, a lot of things seem to be quite relaxed <laughs> right now compared to the normal loopholes I have to, to jump through to mm. make things happen. I don't know if that's... I think that cuts across not just theatre as well. I, I work for Glasgow Museums um, and a lot of what you're talking about, about taking things into people's homes, we kind of do that already. I work for the Open Museum, which is community outreach, so we take objects into people's homes and all that kind of stuff. And we set up in shopping centres, you know, so rather than in traditional museum venues, because we don't like the idea of museums having walls, we think they should be out there. Um, so we take objects into spaces that people frequent on a daily basis rather than expecting them to come to us. So there's very much a lot of this, you know, us coming out of our comfort zone, going into other people's comfort zones, etc. etc. Um, but just going back to you talking about, you know, rigors and <laughs> that kind of stuff. I was in uh, Sweden on a holiday last summer and uh, <coughs> we visited a castle and they had all the usual reenactors and everything but they were doing like lead smelting with kids, you know, <laughs> kids were melting their own lead and pouring it in gold and making their own pens and stuff. I was thinking, oh how bloody wonderful is this but I thought there's no way I'd get the chance to do that back, back at base, you know, it's, it's back to that, you know. And yet upstairs we were talking about how important it is for people to have the opportunity to take risk. Just about and to that's say all being <laughs> taken away, you know, and I, I, I think that really, really needs to be looked at because okay, people need to be safe, but I think it's going a bit crazy. You know? On that note, there's an interesting. If you are interested in that, it could be worth pointing out that Push is a European project that is being partnered with Imaginate, who are an organisation based in Edinburgh, and then four other partners across Europe, and they've had three different labs, one of which and. Their organisations all deal with children and young people. Is about overprotection that's just happened in Belgium. So there should be some interesting stuff coming out of there. Just looking at how we deal with overprotection in the work that we make generally, and really from a physical perspective, can we have kids sitting on a wall to watch this? Okay. <laughs> um, all the way through to can I give a child a knife? Exactly. What, what, do, what do other people feel about this? This kind of balance between protecting people and and, and, uh, and, and and allowing people to take risks. There's a hand going up here. Um, it's become risk elimination rather than risk management. And it's prevalent not just in health and safety, but in, in many other walks of life as well. It's, it's, the, it's the source of... Sorry, we did you finish? <coughs> sorry. <laughs> um, it, it's the source, very much so, of my social anxiety growing up, is the fact that... And I have wonderful parents, you know, they know that I speak about this, um, but I was really shy, I was really timid as a, as a kid, and it's really cute when you're five and you're small and you're hiding behind your parents and you don't want to go to the parties or you don't want to go to brownies or you don't want to climb a tree, that's fine when you're 16 and you have not developed any context for risk, mm. you're gubbed. Because I couldn't tell the difference, I got to 30 and I couldn't tell the difference between, you know, running out in front of your car or answering the phone. They were both as terrifying for me. So I would take really ridiculous risks because I didn't know if that was scary, but I couldn't open my own front door. 
So I hadn't been allowed to develop this kind of sense of what is a manageable risk when I was at an age that people could feed you into that and then pull you back out, you know, like doing lead smelting <laughs> workshops. You know, there's always there's going to be somebody there that will, you know, mitigate the risk for you and you can learn what is a manageable risk, what situations you should be putting yourself into and what you shouldn't. And I, I had no concept of that whatsoever. And it is really affecting young people and um, I go into schools a lot these days and talk to people about and the level of social anxiety and just not wanting to be seen to get things wrong. We need to give young people permission to be, we were talking about this yeah. earlier, to be bad at things and not only... I really suffered with only doing things that I was good at because I didn't want to be seen to be failing. So we are so success driven and so results driven that we're, we're breeding young people who don't know that it's all right to get something wrong. It's all right to take a risk and for it not to come off. It's all right to go out on a bike and fall off because nobody's going to get hurt. It's absolutely fine. Um, and I think that's what I really suffered from. I think you mean they're not going to get hurt too badly, so you know, if you give each other the knife and they cut their finger, fine, they probably won't do it again. They won't, yeah, that's how you learn. <laughs> but also they might, but it's that much of a chance of it, and the benefits that yeah. most of you know have got a kid, and then won't you struggle with that all the time? I'm not talking about shoving kids off cliffs or anything. No, but, but you yeah. have to let them go to the shop. Yeah. You know, there's been a big chat on Facebook, some of the mums, I'm thinking, seriously, they're 11. When I went to high school, it's like just thinking, you know, do you leave yours in the house alone yet? Because I'm thinking I might, another bunch of playing going, yes, I do, but they're not allowed to answer the phone, and as long as they don't cook or eat anything, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, Take it seriously, but on the other hand, you have to make a decision that you know you have to take a risk, and sometimes it doesn't go right. One day they are not going to have you there cutting their grapes for them, so they need to know if they have if that's a risk or if you know if they can do it themselves. Well, I also wonder about leading by example as well because the conversation we had with us as adults saying it took me a long time to learn to do something and be bad at it and be okay with being bad at it or be alright at it and completely push away the question, well what next? Eh? Do you think about selling your cake? You know, you're like, no, just gonna make the cake. <laughs> that's it, that's all I want to do with cake. I'm just gonna make it and eat it, that's fine. Um, and it feels like a really radical act to be able to say, I don't now need a Facebook page or a website, I'm just making cake. <laughs> but I wonder how we're setting that example ourselves. You know, how many people go home and do something appallingly? <laughs> yeah, um, one thing that I can say when I was really young, I wasn't really exposed with risk just because I was very anxious as a child and even when I was the, uh, the older as well. My uh, parents, they didn't want me to walk out on my own or to go into like the West End on my own. That was a big thing. I couldn't go into the West End until I was 17. <laughs> like seriously, that's what happened. And um, when, like I'm only 25 uh, right now and it took me a while before I could just leave the house on my own and I could actually like live, not like live on my own, but like uh, function. Mm -hmm. 
on my own without needing someone else there to go, okay, this is where you have to go for food, this is how to get on the train to go into town, here's how you hop on a flight somewhere, but luckily, like, I had to learn really, really fast, but I think if I was exposed to risk just a little bit as a kid, yeah. it wouldn't seem like such a big hassle to me just to try and sort out how do I go to this other place like for, for this for example yeah. that uh, makes me think about um, encouraging the discussion of mental health opening it out so that people who feel they are experiencing poor mental health don't see themselves as people who have to avoid things don't see themselves as having to um, retreat inside a cocoon and treat themselves carefully and the, 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 I suppose the, the obsessive approach to self-care. I mustn't do this, I mustn't do that. And, and, and changing the way we talk about how people um, see themselves if they're suffering from poor mental health. Because I think, I think you can become, or you can feel, because I'm depressed, because I'm anxious, I mustn't do, I can't do, I can't. And it's ch changing the language that people use to discuss their own situation. I think you said, sorry, um, I said earlier on that like, I became tired of waiting to be well before my life could start, and I think yeah. we all we all do that. Or you know, once I've lost a few pounds, then I'll start going to the gym. Or once you know, once my hair flips, it's a bit better. I'll, you know, we all kind of wait for things to happen, and it took for me to start before my life started. You know, I just had to get out there and just start it instead of I waited for 30 years before it, waiting for something something miraculous to happen yeah. that would that would cure me and then I would start living my life and I think you kind of need to just remind people that you can live completely healthily and well with anxiety you just have to start doing it and was there a moment that you could identify when you, you made that switch? Um, I was about, I think it was just after my 30th birthday and um, I couldn't go out on my 30th birthday and I've got this photo um, and I often show it and it's just me sitting reading a book and my husband took the photo in the mirror and I didn't know the photo was being taken because he wouldn't have got near me with a camera, there are no photos of me um, and I saw it afterwards and I thought, I thought I would be better than this, I thought I would do more and I thought, you know that feeling that there's something more for you, there's something more that you can give to the world, there's something you're meant to be doing something something bigger and I thought that's not that's not my life this and the photo was my life like it encapsulated pretty much everything that I could do mm -hmm. um, and it was getting to that point that I'd tried everything in um, psychiatry were saying there's nothing else we can do for you really and a big decision was going to have to be made <coughs> and I just thought it's going to come from me um, and that's when I went a bit crazy and just started <laughs> yeah, doing silly things to shock myself out of anxiety and just to remind myself that um, that you can live a healthy life with anxiety. It's just something that you learn to cope with. I wonder a wee bit about as well, it's kind of a question for both of you, education in terms of normal, and I use that phrase quite sarcastically because I don't really believe in it, but <coughs> um, sometimes I feel like education can be driven towards or information can be driven towards the people who are perceived to have the problem. Um, but I know in terms of a relaxed performance, experts in short trousers, for example, 
is the ultimate relaxed performance because you genuinely can do whatever as long as you're not hurting the performers. Mm -hmm. um, but we had a situation in one of our venues where a friend brought her autistic son with her. Um, and because kind of the neurotypical conventional audience weren't sure how they were meant to behave in the situation and we eased them into that. But um, my friend's son got it straight away, but because everyone identified him as being other or autistic, they retreated and it, it was almost like the education we needed to do in that situation wasn't about creating the relaxed performance or for the boy who was autistic, we needed to, to educate the conventional audience who had learned theatre convention mm -hmm. and then couldn't let go and free up. And I wonder for both of you how you see education in those areas. I think that's why it comes down to a bit of a debate in what we call those performances as well because some of the venues prefer to call them autism friendly performances specifically for autistic people whereas other venues prefer that relaxed performance because it's just more laid back for everybody um, but there's also with that there's the danger because sometimes because it's so relaxed we've had some like people bringing along their like one year old babies um, to, to watch a show um, so you've got a group of autistic people who are trying to like they're, they're already get sensory overload and then the child starts crying at the back of the room and um, but it's relaxed and it's for everybody to come along to yeah. so um, so there's a bit of a debate there but yeah I think it is generally just a bit of understanding for everybody um, we've got our main campaign at the moment is the too much information campaign which is about educating the public about um, autism and the fact that it is a spectrum and that everybody's affected differently um, and trying to get rid of that kind of stereotypical Rain Man view that a lot of people have about autism um, and breaking down those barriers so that and we've also got it's the too much information talks so people that we support get trained on how to deliver talks to small businesses and places where they want to go so it could be like cafes or you know restaurants and things like that and it's free so the people that we support will go in and talk about their autism and how it affects them and what would make that environment more welcoming for them so that's another initiative that we do in part as part of education. I think, um, sort of going back to one of the first questions about how do we make things more accessible, I was fortunate enough in my last job to work for four years for a participatory arts organisation and my units were arts and mental health and arts and young people and one of the things, the lessons I learned the most and I am somebody who's had anxiety. I'm, I'm the person that, when I used to work in theatre and film, I couldn't go to the cinema or theatre. I worked in a theatre and I used to go to the toilet about 100 times before a show started, and if I didn't get that end seat, there was no way I was staying. So I have that sort of like direct experience. But one of the things that I found really interesting is I'm somebody who's awful at geography but I became the world's best map reader because uh, the adults who used to access our visual arts group and they came to use visual arts to help their mental health, be it recovery or maintenance. One of the biggest questions I used to get was, how do I get to you? What does your building look like? How do I get in? what is it is and I just slowly realized I need to get that knowledge and 
I delivered in Sterling. I live in Edinburgh. I can now navigate Sterling <laughs> backwards purely because I just went, this is what I have to do. And for some people, it, it was very much being flexible and sort of saying, if you come into the space and you want to leave one minute afterwards, if you don't even sit down, great. If you stay for two hours, fantastic. If you touch a piece of paper, great. If you do your Picasso, wonderful. It's your space. And I think that's one of the things with, be it a theater, a film, an art gallery or something is, and what you were saying about, you know, you can't just say it, you kind of need to demonstrate that you're willing to listen to everyone's individual needs and say, what can I do for you? Because every single person's anxiety, depression, be it a mental health illness, be it I worked across the autism spectrum as well, I worked with people's complex um, learned disabilities, complex physical needs, they're all different. And I worked out that my job was just to listen and then to suddenly be the best Googler in the world <laughs> and the best researcher and kind of go, okay, or go, okay, you can get on the bus, that's fantastic. And actually for some people, yeah, getting out that door and getting on that bus, that's fantastic. But you need me to walk to meet you from that bus stop and you need me to do it every week, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. And but some of those relationships took a year to build up. I had people, I worked in that job for four years, and I had people who I communicated with for four years, and maybe finally met them. And I had people who I met, we worked together for 10 weeks, and they were great, and they moved on. But it was having that flexibility and that listening that was key for access. I think you're right and I think having another person to go on that journey with you so if you want to get involved in accessing the arts whether it is going to museums or the theatre or somewhere else just having somebody who knows you and understands your needs and your anxiety can make all the difference and I think that's where maybe befriending and mentoring um, organisations can really come into their own as well um, because it's not a generic package of support where um, you're kind of treating everybody the same. You've you've got a volunteer who's going to take that time to really get to know you and go at your pace, as well. I think that can make all the difference. Hi. I just kind of echo what you're saying. I work with adults with learning disabilities and mental health problems. I'm an art therapist, and getting people to have get their foot over the door, particularly for the community patients, is the hardest part of the journey. Um, and what we do to try and accommodate that is to have as much accessible information as possible in advance. So it is about sending out letters with pictures of yourself <laughs> on it, so that you know who it is. Sending out pictures, uh, sending out letters with pictures of the setting, with maps, with as much information as you can possibly give to ease that kind of anxiety about setting foot and you know bringing other people along. If you feel comfortable, bring someone that you you know really well along with you mm -hmm. just for the first meeting. You've got to kind of meet people halfway. You've got to be able to and um, to get to get them over the, the doorway. It just takes so much courage. Um, but I think in terms of people with learning disabilities and mental health issues, it's very difficult for them to access a lot of the converts venues and a lot of the, the arts things that are out there. And also they don't have necessarily have the inclination to go into the spaces because they can feel a bit intimidating as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got the 
we fortunately got um, the fire station and um, fire station creative up into Berlin. We've got an art therapy room there, um, so we're actually bringing community clients in to do art therapy there rather than in the hospital because the space feels different. It feels um, more anonymous. It feels more um, yeah, it's a creative space. It's not clinical space. And for a lot of the people that have been involved in kind of long-term care, that can make all the difference. Is um, the setting really needs to be right? Um, I'm not really sure where I'm going with this. I'm not generally, but it brings to mind so many things. But I think we've got a lot of work to do um, to try and meet people where they're at. Yeah, I think it's that gradualness of it as well. As part of our 20th anniversary, we um, had a an event at the Scottish Parliament. And um, we had 14 people who did stand-up comedy workshops with Janie Godley, the comedian. Um, and they actually did the performance in front of hundreds of people. Um, they each did their own stand-up piece. But if we'd said to them at the very start of it, um, right guys, we're going to get you together and you're, you're going to be doing stand-up comedy at the Scottish Parliament in front of hundreds, <laughs> over 100 people, what do you think? Every one of them would have said, absolutely not. Um, and although that kind of was the end goal, um, it was more about that journey. So the first stage was, right guys, let's just get together and talk about comedy. And that was like literally it. And then, you know, we did that for a couple of weeks and then it was, let's try out a couple of jokes. Um, and they knew that the, the stand-up was a possibility and if they felt confident enough to do it, they could, but that wasn't the end goal for it. It was all just that journey. But actually, everybody did do it. The video's on our Facebook page if you want to watch it. It's hilarious. And we had people doing like physical comedy with props and all sorts of things. And then we had just the traditional one guy standing with a mic telling jokes. And it was hilarious and it, did, it just felt like being at a, a comedy venue. It was really, really good. Um, but all of them said, you know, at the start, if you'd said you're going to do stand-up at the Parliament, they would all would have said definitely not, but they did it and it was amazing. It's baby steps, isn't it? It is, um, yeah, that's it. Allowing people to have the information that they need at the right time and not making assumptions. I think, for example, taking uh, a client with learning disabilities into a gallery space and the first thing you want to do is run up with both hands and <laughs> touch everything. Mm -hmm. And you think, oh, I forgot to kind of run through what... <laughs> this, is not, this is not like the other spaces that we go to. This is different. You know, there are rules, there are things that you have to observe when you're going into the kind of art spaces, theatre spaces and things. And we don't necessarily... We, we, we take for granted that everyone knows those. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we need to kind of start from scratch and think, right, well, what are these spaces for? How do we act in them? And explain, you know, the reasons for that, and be accommodating of um, people's interest and in things, and the way people experience things differently. I think we also need to start kind of normalising difference in society, you know, um, and just accepting that there is no, there is no normal, you know, like and maybe some of these social norms that we've built up over the years that make us also anxious just don't matter anymore. They, they aren't relevant in the society that that we live in. For you know, and for me, that was just. You know, how am I meant to act in this particular space or how am I meant to, well, if you don't know then, you know, how do you deal with that? For me it was just retreat and never, as you say, just take myself out of the situation and not go into it, whereas we should be trying to break those down a bit and make them make the places more welcoming to the people rather than the other way around. Yeah. Are there thoughts, questions? I, I just wondered um, to what degree you considered um, carers as gatekeepers? Um, in other words, when you're dealing particularly with people uh, with learning dis disabilities, um, they're also independent, and uh, many carers are not people who come to it as a profession, they're landed it with it as family relatives. Yep. 
and it's it, so actually that's where our um, relaxed performances came out of. One of our um, parent volunteers, who's um, the chair of one of our branches up uh, in Nairn, um, a guy called Glenn Morris, he went to London to watch with his son, um, who um, is not quite non-verbal, but he'll make a lot of long vowel sounds and a lot of vocalisation. So he went with his wife, um, his son and his wee girl to, I think it was the Lion King in London. Um, and it wasn't a relaxed performance, it was just an ordinary show. And his son was actually enjoying the show, and but he was making a lot of those kind of long vowel sounds. And none of the audience or, or anybody around about were complaining about it, but the staff, eh, a couple of staff members, asked him to leave. And asked him to leave with his son, but um, his wife and his daughter could stay. Um, and as a compromise, what they said was there was a bit of a barrier so that he could watch it through a screen. Um, and Glenn was like, this is not good enough. Um, so it was actually him that got the ball rolling. So we do consult a lot with carers um, as well and get their thoughts on accessibility um, as well as like the chill out areas and siblings. Siblings, I think, um, get a lot of flack at times um, because if everybody had to leave that show that day, then then his daughter would have missed out on the show as well. And quite often that happens where you know somebody can't cope and halfway through a performance, they've all got, the whole family's got to leave, so it, it impacts on everybody. Yeah, and even if only half the family leave, it's still absolutely yeah. tainted. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I think well, it's, it's quarter to four, so um, I think we should probably wrap up there. I think some really interesting stuff has come out of that discussion, a lot, a lot of things that we'll, we'll learn from. Um, thank you so much to our panel. Thank you for everyone for, for, for contributing. Um, Round of applause for everybody. <laughs>